You may be seated. Please have a seat. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. Uh, It seems like we say this every week here, but we're doing things a little different this morning, and we're going to begin by launching into our new four-week series in the life of David. Now, before I get there, we do have some very special visitors with us today. We have ladies from Lincoln Christian University, the volleyball team. Wave at me, volleyball team. Welcome our volleyball team from Lincoln Christian University. I need to spend some time before we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, kind of filling in some gaps for you with how we were able to get to this point. Three weeks ago on Father's Day, we looked at the life of Hannah and Hannah's heart for the Lord. You remember when Hannah cried out to the Lord what she wanted more than anything else? What was it? Just say it out loud. She wanted a baby, a child. And God heard her cry, and God answered her cry, and she was blessed with a beautiful little baby boy who grew up to become one of Israel's greatest leaders, and his name was Samuel. And Samuel is really more of the central part of the story than David is, but we can't tell David's life without talking about his calling, without talking about his anointing. So in today's message from 1 Samuel 16, there's really three primary people you need to know about. The first is Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, Samuel was a judge, Samuel was a seer. Samuel was Israel's leader during the time when they had no king. Israel was different than most of the other nations during that time. They did not have a king, but Samuel was their undisputed leader. The second person we're going to look at today is a guy by the name of Saul, son of Kish. Now you need to understand there's a Saul in the New Testament. He saw the light, he was blinded, he became Paul, he went on to become the greatest missionary the world has ever known. That's not this Saul from our account. The Saul from our account um, was very distinguished physically. 1 Samuel 9, 2 says that Saul was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. He was a head taller than any of the others. And Saul's family uh, will bring about some names that you may recognize. Saul had a son by the name of Jonathan. He became David's very best friend. 1 Samuel chapter 20 might be the best chapter in the whole Bible on what a good godly friendship should look like. So that might be something for you to do in your spare time if you want to do a a, a personal study on that chapter and that friendship, that very special friendship. But Saul is the second character in our story. And then the third person is a guy by the name of Jesse and his sons. Jesse was from the town of Bethlehem. When we studied Ruth, what was that? That was five weeks ago. Ruth and her husband hailed from Bethlehem. And we said at that point, Bethlehem was no big deal. At that point, Bethlehem was just kind of a small, obscure village. It is still a small, obscure village at this point, but it's about to change. And it's about to change in a major, major way. And Jesse... The the father of eight sons is from the village of Bethlehem. Well, what's the situation? What's the situation? Well, the first situation that is unfolding as we get to 1 Samuel 16 is that Israel wants a king. I told you earlier, Samuel, undisputed leader. Samuel, great leader. 
But the elders of Israel cry out to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is recorded. 1 Samuel chapter 8, excuse me. This is recorded. They say to Samuel, you are old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They tell Samuel, you're not going to be here a whole lot longer. Your sons don't have the faith that you have. But more than anything else... Everybody else has a king, and we want to be like everybody else. So that's the first situation. Israel wants a king. The second situation that's unfolded is that the Lord hears their cry. Even though the Lord doesn't want it to play out like that, even though Samuel doesn't want it to play out like that, the Lord finally says, that's fine. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Give them what they want. And this this man, Saul, son of Kish, becomes the first king of Israel. You can read about Saul's reign in chapters like 1 Samuel 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Um, Unfortunately, Saul's reign, it doesn't last. It's not what they had thought it would be. The Israelites realize after a time that our longing for a king really hasn't changed a whole lot. Many of the problems that we faced, we're still facing. Many of the issues that we're enduring, we're still dealing with them. So Saul doesn't really add up to what they thought he was going to add up to, a great leader. And then finally, the Lord tells Samuel, enough's enough. I'm done with Saul. It's time to go and anoint the next king of Israel. Isn't it great, by the way, to hear rain and thunder? Isn't that a great sound? Amen. Just wanted to see if you were paying attention. Uh, The Lord finally says, enough's enough. Saul's not who I thought he was going to be. Saul's not doing what I need my leader of my people to do. I'm done with him. And he says to Samuel, go and anoint the next king of Israel. And that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 16. So let's read together the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Listen to the word of the Lord. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. 
Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Jesse answered, there is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent, had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. That's the word of the Lord. First Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 through 13. There's a lot there. Samuel knows that he's going to anoint the next king of Israel. He realizes that it's one of Jesse's sons, but he has no idea how it's going to unfold. And this morning, real quickly, I want to help us uncover four lessons that I think are relevant for our lives today. They're relevant for you, whoever you are. Wherever you're at in your walk with Christ, or maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you're really not a person of faith. Someone drug you here on July 8th, and you're just here. There are lessons for us to grab a hold of. And lesson number one is this. Samuel learned that the Lord is in charge. He's not in charge. The Lord is in charge, no matter the circumstances. We didn't really do justice to our text. We should have spent more time preparing this morning, reading in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, because there's this great tension that's unfolding. Samuel wants Saul to succeed as king. Saul's just not the man. He's just not cutting it. He's making bad decisions. He's making ungodly decisions. And Samuel is trying to step in, and he's trying to help Saul along the way. But it's almost like it's not meant to be. And you know why it's almost like that? Because that's exactly the case. It's not meant to be. And Samuel's struggling. Samuel is dealing with grief. He's overwhelmed by grief. Look at verse 1 of your text. It says, how long, the Lord asked Samuel, are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him king over Israel? Samuel's broken up. He's struggling. He's grieving. And he doesn't understand why it's got to play out like this. Secondly, Samuel's also slowed down by worry or by fear. He's afraid of what might happen if he listens to the Lord and he goes through with this command from the Lord. Verse 2, he says, how can I go? Saul's going to hear about this and he will kill me. He's afraid of what's going to happen if he goes through with the plan of the Lord. And then third, Samuel is driven by worldly standards. Does Does that connect with any of us this morning? It says the oldest, Eliab, walked in, said he had a great appearance, he looked good, he was physically well-built, and Samuel's initial reaction is, he's got to be the one. He has to be the one. Look at him. He looks like he should be on the cover of GQ. He looks like he could go out today and 
win a triathlon or a marathon or some great physical adventure. He was driven by worldly standards. And this morning, my friends, I say this with grace. I think that unfortunately, when we wrestle with God, when we say, God, life's not happening like I want it to happen, the job's not playing out like I want it to, my family's not playing out like I want it to, my personal life is in shambles, and we know we're supposed to trust the Lord, and we know God has a plan for our life, but it's not really playing out like we want it to, we have a tendency to let fear drive us. We have a tendency to let worry drive us. We have a tendency to to be overcome by grief. We have the temptation to try to define everything in our lives by worldly standards. Samuel learned first and foremost, toward the end of his life, toward the end of his time as a difference-making, influential leader, the Lord is in control. And if you're wrestling with that today, if you're saying, I know I'm supposed to say the Lord's in control, but I want to be in control, maybe God's Word can help you. Maybe the struggles that Samuel went through can help you as you struggle to let go and let God. Lesson number one, Samuel learned the Lord's in control no matter the circumstance. The second thing I want you to see this morning, second lesson, is that the Lord taught Samuel, I'm calling it a timeless truth, and it's countercultural. And what I mean by that is it's true in maybe 1100, 1050 B.C., time of our text. It's true in 2012. And the Lord really lays it out for Samuel in the midst of this calling out of the next king of Israel. Here's what he says in verse 7 from your text. He says, don't consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The world looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the driving point of this message. If you get nothing else this morning for whatever reason, get this. The Lord defines people differently than we do. Bottom line. And I am guilty as charged of judging people by outward appearance. And I bet if you were being honest, there's been a time in your life you've done exactly the same thing. This was really illustrated for me 16 years ago. 16 years ago, I was able to be a part of kind of a joint mission trip venture between the ICTC, the Illinois Christian Teen Convention, Little Galilee Christian Camp, my youth group in Mawequa, and another youth group. We, we went together and we put together a team of 40, 45 students. Jan Rutledge was on that trip, and it was an awesome, awesome time to see how God worked in a great and mighty way. We worked with uh, Rick and Suzanne York, and it was awesome. Part of the process was, I think we maybe had 10 slots for students that were part of the Illinois Christian Teen Convention to apply for this mission trip and to be selected to go on this mission trip. And I'm going to, I'm guessing, I don't know the exact number, but 12 or 13 applications came in. So we had to sit down, there was a team of us, and we had to decide who was going to be selected to go on this mission trip. There was a, a, a high school girl by the name of Crystal that applied. Crystal was about five feet tall. Um, pretty wide, not, not very uh, imposing from a physical standpoint. 
And as I saw the picture that she sent in, I'm just being honest with you this morning, I just said, she's not going to cut it. She's not what we're looking for. We need football players. We need people that are really built physically. They're going to be able to endure the July heat in the Caribbean as we work on this soon-to-be church camp. And I just have my mind made up, she's not going on the trip. Well, we started diving in further to the application process and realized she was just on fire for Jesus. She was on fire for the Lord. And she didn't just have the Sunday morning, 11 a.m. kind of faith. It was a 24-7 kind of faith. She'd already decided she was going to Bible college. She wanted to be a missionary. God was going to use her in a great and mighty way. But I have to confess to you this morning, all I could see was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Dominican heat, and somebody that's not going to be able to do the work on the trip. And I was pretty adamant she's not going. I really got put to shame in our selection meeting by one of my best friends in ministry. And he just said, you know, reading through these 13 applications, if Crystal's not a part of this trip, no one should be a part of the trip. She's going or I'm not going. And I was finally like, okay. But for the two months leading up to the trip, I just said to him, when she melts down, she's all you. When we have a problem, you're going to deal with it. And guess what ended up happening on that trip? She was probably the hardest worker on the trip. She put some of our football players to shame in many ways at how hard she worked. She wasn't physically imposing. She'll never be on the cover of a magazine. But she had a heart that was unlike almost anyone else I met that summer. And I learned a valuable lesson. It stuck with me. We shouldn't judge by worldly standards. We shouldn't judge by labels or weight or height or appearance. God doesn't. God looks at the heart. So let me just challenge you, especially if you're in your teenage years, maybe your college years, and you've bought the hype that is American materialism. Take a step back. When you try to decide who you want to spend time with, when you try to decide the relationships you want to be a part of, do a heart check. Spend time looking at the heart. That's the lesson that the Lord had for Samuel. There's a third truth I want you to see this morning, and that's that David learned the value and the importance of what I'm going to call humble service. Now, two weeks from today, I'm not preaching. One of the best preachers I know, a guy by the name of Mike Malik, is going to be in our pulpit. He's preached for us the last couple summers. He's going to do a great job once again. He's going to be here, and he's going to spend time looking at Psalm 23, David's most famous psalm. And he's going to bring out many of the characteristics that I'm going to kind of just mention right now. But I think the reason that the Lord knew David was different, I think the, the, the reason that the Lord knew David's heart is because David had a, a, a young lifetime of developing several very important traits. And we can see this holistically through his life in many ways. David, for instance, is someone that had learned patience. I, I'm not a patient person. And before you laugh at me, you're probably not a patient person either. We're not, are we? I mean, we're waiting three minutes at McDonald's for a cup of coffee, and we're frustrated, aren't we? We want it here, we want it now, we want it our way. That's our culture that we live in in many ways. And yet David learned patience through humble service. Herding sheep takes time. He was a shepherd boy. He learned the need for patience. That's a great lesson. David also learned responsibility. 
One of the things that David was able to bring eventually, and we're going to see it in a couple weeks, he was able to bring it into his reign as king, was how important it was to be personally responsible. It started with him. When David kind of got sidetracked late in life, and we're not even going to look at that these four weeks, but when, when he really fell hard, it's because his personal spiritual responsibility took a back seat to his reign as king. Number three, David learned quietness. Psalm 46, verse 10 simply says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I struggle with quietness. We struggle with quietness. When's the last time you went home, didn't turn any electronic device on whatsoever, found your favorite chair, grabbed God's Word, and just spent 60 minutes meditating on God's Word. You know what gets in the way a lot of times is, well, we've got to walk the dog, or we've got to make supper, or we've got to empty the dishes, or we've got to do the wash, or we've got to get the kids ready for camp, or we've got to do this, or we've got to do that. And let me remind you, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. David learned the value of quietness. And David also learned humility. Being the youngest son of Jesse, David knew what humility was all about. This would serve him well on many occasions as he is beginning to ascend to king and while he was king. Let me remind you what Proverbs 3.34 says, The Lord mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. You know, Jesus himself, Mark 10.45, the most important verse in the entire gospel of Mark, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. Servant leadership, humble leadership, leading with humility. Someone in my life that I appreciate very much, I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't like me to mention his name, but his initials are Kevin Peterson. Um, Whenever someone says to him, you are the man, I love what his response is. He says, I'm not the man, but I work for the man. And that's a motto each and every one of us should embrace. Um, Pride can destroy many a person of faith. But when we're truly humble, when we truly understand the big picture, God will use us in a great and mighty way. Well, lesson four, really, we're not going to uncover this morning. We're going to see more of it next week and as this short series unfolds. But lesson four is simply Saul and David begin the slow process of reversing roles. Saul is king and he's slowly losing his kingdom. And David's the youngest son of Jesse, just, a, just a, a humble shepherd boy. And he's on his way to ascending to the highest of high. Maybe the greatest leader in the Old Testament, King David. And, and, and this, this process is unfolding. Process is unfolding. If you have time this week, I've just challenged you to spend time in the last half of 1 Samuel chapter 16. You really see the torment that Saul is facing in many ways. The Spirit of the Lord has left him, and, and, and he knows that he's on the way out. The only thing that he's able to find comfort in 
It's when David comes and plays his harp. I want you to think about that, David playing the harp as you hear the offertory this morning. Just think of that image of David playing the harp and that being the only thing that Saul is able to find comfort in. Well, the bottom line this morning, I hope you heard it. I hope you grabbed it. I hope it's obvious for you. David caught the eye of the Lord because of his heart. It wasn't because he was physically imposing. It wasn't because he was handsome. It wasn't because uh, he was ready for the cover of GQ. He caught the Lord's attention because of his heart. That's the result. That's the bottom line. That's the point of this message. And that's a life truth for each and every one of us that are here today. If you've been a decades-long Christian or you're not even a Christ follower, it all begins with the heart. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. And thank you for the opportunity to to spend time in your word. I, I thank you for David and for his life and for just the great impact he made as one of Israel's great leaders. And I pray that over these next four weeks, we can learn much about what made him a great leader. I I think we're going to learn that it, it probably wasn't many of the things that we typically associate with great leadership. It probably isn't the ability to, to give a great speech or to look incredibly handsome or to hobnob with the rich and the wealthy. But it's all about the heart. It's all about a heart for you. And while none of us here today will ever be king or queen, we are called to be difference makers. In our, in our journey as Christ followers, we're called to, to make an impact on the people we encounter. And it all starts with the heart. Thank you for David, the man after God's own heart. And I pray that we can strive to be more and more like him in our lives. It's in the name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.